The Tower of uh, Pisa was built in the 12th century. And by the time it was completed, they figured it was leaning about half a degree. You might say that's nothing. Well, this thing's like 185 feet tall and very heavy. So that's kind of significant. It continued to lean right into the 1980s. In fact, architects were extremely concerned that this thing was going to collapse. Probably in the early 90s, it had gone to the point where it was leaning 5.5 degrees. So they hired the world's best engineers. They hooked giant cables to this thing. And they closed it down to the public for 11 years and started to excavate under it to try to correct it. And they, they were able to pull it back. So it leans now about three and a half or four degrees. And of course, because it's known as a leaning tower, I have a suspicion they don't want it to ever be fully straight because it is a tourist attraction. But the reason why this tower is so iconic is because it was built on soft soil. The foundations were not properly laid. The designers designed a beautiful structure, but the foundation has a problem with it. And this thing might continue to stand for a couple hundred more years now that it has been somewhat fixed. But if it's not continued, if they don't continue to correct it, guess what? Eventually this tower will fall. Now I want to talk to you this morning about foundations. Foundations are really, really important. If you have a house and you have a good foundation, you can continue to renovate the upstairs. You can change your roof out, change your windows, change your flooring, move walls, walls around, renovate the kitchen or the bathroom. You can continue to make changes for, for decades, potentially, as long as you have a strong foundation. And the same is true of the church. Change is an inevitable and necessary part of doing ministry. Churches change their methods They change their musical styles. They change their leadership. They change their names. They change their denominations. They may may even change their language. But the foundation of the church can never change. The foundation of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ, his full person and his full work on our behalf. So here's the question I would like to propose to you today. It is, what are the foundations of your faith? And then a very personal question, are those foundations strong? So what are they? And are they strong? I'm beginning a new series this morning on the epistle of 1 John. So the the apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote no less than five books in our New Testament. He wrote the gospel of John. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, all epistles to early believing communities. And then he also wrote the book of Revelation, which we studied a year or so ago from one end to the other in our church. But today we're going to look at the epistle of 1 John, the largest of the three epistles that he's given to us. And I've entitled this series, Basic Christianity. Now, when you hear the word basic, I don't want you to hear the word baby Christianity. I don't want you to hear the word bland Christianity or brainless Christianity. Sometimes the word basic can almost mean inconsequential. That's not how I'm using it. I want to talk to you about the foundations of our faith. The basis 
of our faith. What is our faith actually built on? The Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Christians are not immune to arguing and conflict. And many churches over the years have diminished and declined because people argue about the stuff above grade. They argue about change. Oh, we don't want the style to change. We don't want the approach to change. We, we want to keep this version of the Bible. We don't want to change our location, our name, our denomination. We don't want anything to change. We don't want to change the carpet. I want to sit in the same chair every week. It's possible that in our faith, we can start to lock ourselves down to man-made constructs or ideas or philosophies or methods, and we lose sight of what actually binds us together. Why would we all come into this room today? We don't look the same. We're not born in the same countries. We don't all have the same jobs. We're not the same ages. We don't have the same interests. We don't have the same educational level. What is it that brings a ragtag group like us into this room today? Our commonality is our foundation. And our foundation is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we enter into the first chapter of first John, the apostle communicates to us that Christianity is actually founded on facts. And those facts inform our footsteps. It's founded on fact. And we're going to see this in the text. And those facts affect the way we walk, the way we live in our faith. So what is the foundation of Christianity? Very simply, it's God came down. God came down because we couldn't climb up. We couldn't work our way back into union with God. We are rebels without a cause. Born in sin, and we get pretty good at it. Separated from a holy God because of our sin. But God came down. And this is the foundation of our faith. So the, the Apostle John speaks in very factual language. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 John. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Notice he's, he's kind of heading off at the pass. Any accusation that might suggest, well, he's talking about, well, he saw it spiritually or he, he kind of heard it in his higher spiritual life. It was just sort of a personal experience. It wasn't anything historic or factual. No, it was factual. He saw it with his eyes. He touched it with his hands. He actually encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. Concerning the word of life, verse 2, the life that was made manifest. This is an interesting word. It comes up twice in the text. We believe that God is everywhere, do we not? Every Christian believes that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But God manifests himself in extra special ways, in very particular ways, at different junctures of history. And the most important 
for the purposes of our faith is when he manifested himself to us through Jesus Christ. God actually condescended onto this planet and lived among us. So it reminds us of this, that life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard. He's stressing it. This is not fiction, folks. This is fact. Which we have seen and which we have heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, why, why do we need to know this? Like, I just need more facts? I got a lot of facts stored up in my head. Do I use them? Many of them know. So is the Bible just about getting the facts right? No, it's meant to transform your life. So having reminded us of the facts of Jesus coming, which were encountered by the disciples, they saw it, they touched it, they heard it. He tells us why. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. So there's a couple things he has in mind here. He wants our fellowship as God's people to be centered on Christ. That's what binds us together. That's why I can have radical unity with you and friendship with you and longevity with you in this life. Because what binds us together is not our culture. It's not we all like the same music. Or we just like this address. Or we just really like each other. You know why that doesn't work? What if we change our addresses? What if we offend each other and no longer like each other? See, these things come and go. But what brings us together in fellowship is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then out of that, of course, we have fellowship with God. And he also speaks here about complete joy, which I want to comment on in a moment. Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. John is stressing that to the church. It's not our liturgy. It's not our liturgy. It's not our methods. It's not our musical style. It's not our language. These things are not worth fighting over. These are not the things that bind God's people together. These are not reasons to split churches. These are not reasons to diminish our unity or our influence in our community. They're not worth fighting for. But what is worth fighting for is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the manifestation of God to us. God became tangible in Christ. Very tangible. How tangible? It says they heard him. They seen him. They looked upon him. They touched him. God manifested himself among us. The skeptic says, give me evidence that God exists. Early skeptics saw Jesus too. Heard from Jesus as well. Maybe were touched by Jesus. But they weren't necessarily transformed by it. But thousands did hear, did see, did look upon, did touch Christ. And their lives were radically transformed by it. And get this. Their lives were transformed by it. But they didn't necessarily benefit in the here and now in like a tangible, earthy kind of way. You know, if you study world religions, and maybe you have, it's, it's interesting to study other people's beliefs. 
But if you study world religions and you actually dissect the belief system, you'll see in many of them that there's, a, there's an offer that's made that's kind of tangible. So if you follow our faith, we're going to give you something. We might give you money. So we'll promise you wealth. Or we'll promise you power. Or we'll promise you land. Or we'll promise that your pain will go away. Does Jesus promise those things in the here and now? Here's what Buddha said. Buddha spread what's known as the four noble truths. He acknowledged that we suffer. That's the first one. We all suffer. Then he said, the reason why we suffer is because we desire. So number three, the solution to suffering is to stop desiring things. And then four, he laid out a whole series of steps to help you to crush your desire. So essentially the message of Buddhism is deny reality. That's essentially the message of Buddhism. Deny your suffering. When Muhammad was on the scene, he unified the Arab tribes by war. This is a historic fact. He conquered Mecca. And from there was able to expand Islam and the generations that came after him through military means. That's a fact. In Hinduism, one works for moral perfection through a seemingly endless, maybe even eternal cycle of lives from lesser beings to greater beings. Maybe you're going to spend a generation or two as a cricket. And if you're the best cricket you can be, maybe you'll be promoted to the level of a rabbit. And then if you're the best rabbit, maybe you'll be eventually promoted to being a human in the lowest caste. And if you put up with all the pain and sorrow and diminishment of that position. Maybe in the next life you'll be reincarnated and you'll, you'll work your way up. And, and ultimately at the end, you just return to like cosmic reality or whatever and you cease to exist as an individual. If you think about these religions and compare them to Christ, Christ never denied that we will suffer in this life, not even after our salvation. In fact, he calls us to take up what? Our bags of money? No, our cross, a symbol of shame and suffering. He warns us that following him is going to lead to increased persecution and challenges in this life. Christ never fought with a sword. He fought with the word. He never promised freedom in this life from suffering or free land or a second go around. If you don't get it right in this life, he didn't promise any of that. I don't know how many of you have studied marketing. But if you have and you look at Jesus' message, you can't help to conclude that from a human perspective, he was terrible at marketing the faith. Jesus came to tell us that the problem was us. That's not a good marketing strategy if you're looking for followers. The problem is you. The problem is your sin. The problem is your rebellion. The problem is your wickedness. The problem is with us. That's the bad news. The good news is is that I have the capacity, Jesus says, to free you from your sin, a capacity that you don't possess no matter how hard you try, no matter how many rituals you participate in, you don't have the capacity to fix yourself. 
but I do. And if you trust in me and receive me and repent of your sins and believe in me and follow me, it may not be a cake ride in this life, but I will promise you life eternal. This is the message of Jesus Christ. And these facts were transmitted by early followers who saw it, heard it, witnessed it, experienced it, were transformed by it. The gospel is buttressed by the authenticity of people that didn't benefit from it in this earthly life. They didn't benefit. And I think what that does is it it adds to the believability of their testimony. They're not calling you to Christ so that you can be wealthy and popular and awesome here. But they call you to Christ with contrition and brokenness and repentance, repentance so Christ can do what you're unable to do. In verse 3, the disciples go on to proclaim what they have seen and heard. And they do so in order that the Bible says, your joy may be complete. Everybody has joyful moments. I've had a lot of joyful moments in life. Grade 8 graduation, finally. Grade 12 graduation, finally. She said yes. Finally. I only had to ask her once. The birth of our five children. Joyful moments. Anniversaries. Commemorations. When we founded this church, after so much effort, back in 2001, it's like, yes, the first service. Many joyful moments. But you know what? Over time, don't you find they fade a little bit? I don't think about these things all the time. In fact, rarely. Nor do you. Some of you don't even know what your wedding anniversary is. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But I suspect there's a few. It's like, it was awesome on that day, but I can't remember what the day was. Because the things of this life don't, they offer joy, but it's not complete. It's not all-encompassing. But the joy of knowing Jesus should never fade. And when we come into fellowship with him, there is a complete joy that is available to us. The word complete means complete, full, finished, You really can build your life exclusively upon Jesus, even if you have nothing else. You're dying of cancer. You're broke. You're friendless. You can still have joy with Jesus. You really can. The Bible speaks of a peace that Christ offers that surpasses understanding. You know what that means? It makes no sense from from a human perspective. But it's real. It's real. And it's lasting. And many of you know what that's like. You know, at times in my own life, I become like conscious of something's not right with my heart. Like I feel, I feel like irritable or I feel restless, not satisfied. Or I feel distracted or my mind's racing. Like, what, what is it? What's causing this? What's causing? And in small part, I could say, oh, it was this situation that happened. 
this person said this, or they didn't say that, or they did this, or she said this, or the kids did this, or it's the weather, or whatever, the news. Or, but ultimately, when I start to process the root cause, I can always take it back to one very simple fact. I've taken my eyes off of Jesus. And when we take our eyes off of Jesus, life becomes less than completely joyful. It's a little, little unsettling. And it may take us a while to realize it, but it's just not, we're not where we should be. We're not centered. Something's just not right. I'm feeling it. and It's because I've taken my eyes off of Jesus. Jesus can really offer us complete joy. So if your joy isn't complete or settled, you need to get back to Jesus real quick, church. Just get, just get back to Jesus. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. So that's the foundation. The foundation of our faith is Jesus, the factuality of Jesus coming, the call to surrender to him. But foundations, of course, are meant to be built on. You don't just go out and dig a hole and spend money on a foundation. Say, oh, that looks great. I'm going to move on. You build something on top of a foundation. And here we have something that is meant to be built on the foundation of Christ. What does Christ want to build on himself as the foundation? He wants to build prevailing churches. He wants you to fellowship with him and walk with him. And our church, just to make it simple, we talk about our discipleship model. People are like, what's a disciple? I mean, there's so much to it. There's you know, endless principles and teachings and rules in the scripture. What, what, if just condense it down for me. Like what, when you say disciple, like what is a disciple of Jesus? Very simply, it's a person that worships Christ, walks with Christ, and works for Christ. Very simply. We worship him, we take our eyes off self, we pay him homage. We walk with him, we fellowship, we enjoy that relationship, we commune with him in prayer. We labor over the word of God. We allow him to speak truth into our lives and we serve him. We, we give him our time, our talents, our treasures. Acknowledging that we're not owners, we're just stewards of it anyway. This is a disciple. Zeroing in on that middle double, you walk. Christ came not just to present himself to us and then say, hey, it's been great. See you later but so that we might fellowship and walk with him. So the imagery we have in the next cluster of verses is the imagery of light. So if we turn the lights off, we would find ourselves in a dark place. I remember years ago traveling down to Florida, we saw this little sign somewhere in Tennessee to uh, an ancient cave. I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool. Take the kids there. And so we went to this cave a couple hours and you walk in this big entrance and you kind of start walking down all these rocky and dirt paths and there's uh, artistry on the walls from like Civil War era soldiers and there's like those stalagmite or stalactites hanging from the ceiling and they have uh, displays of saber-toothed cat skulls that they found in this cave. Some cat went down in there or whatever a thousand years ago and died or whatnot. Pretty fascinating. You get under the bottom and, you, and you, you're kind of rallied together. They're like, okay, we're going to do something. We're going to shut the lights out. And they shut the lights out. And you, you, of course, you expect it to be dark. But I'm talking like it is dark, like absolutely dark. You, you can put your finger right on the 
front of your eyeball. You can't see it. Like it is as dark, as dark, as dark, as dark can get. What is darkness? It's not really anything. It's just the absence of light. And here we have God described to us this way. Look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. Well, how much light is he? Because if I turn the light on in my house, let's say I go into my bedroom, I turn the light on. It's like, oh, it's light in here. Kind of, kind of not. Because if I look under the bed, it's still dark. If I look behind the dresser, it's still dark. If I open a drawer, it's still dark in there. If I have a book laying down and I look under the book, there's still darkness. There's darkness between the pages of the book. So there's no such thing really as absolute light, even when we turn the light on. But with God, there literally is absolute light, which refers to his perfection. And light brings perspective, we can now see. And light also brings heat or warmth. So this is the analogy used of God. He is light, what kind of light? In him is no darkness at all. So what do you mean by this? Like, What's this, what's this trying to communicate? Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So it affects our horizontal relationships. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, that's a problem. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, apparently, it's not enough to just believe in the foundations. Apparently, Jesus came so that we might be transformed. Apparently, Jesus came so that we might walk with him and fellowship with him and gain perspective on life. Jesus came to transform us. Christianity is true, but it's also meant to transform you. Christianity is a construct, but it's meant to reconstruct you. Christianity is a message, but it's meant to lead to an extreme makeover in your life. It's supposed to change us. It's supposed to change my attitudes, my perspectives, my mindset, my, what I'm trusting in. Some religions would be quite content for you to say, yeah, I believe that to be true. Quote the creed, quote the doctrine, recite the whatever, the mantra. Christianity wants us to understand truth and then surrender our lives to it so our lives are altered because of it. And to be changed, we must distinguish between truth and lies. So here are five truths that this text reveals for us to hold tight to. The first one is God is light. That means he's the source of truth. And with him, we can see things clearly. Why do you think the world has gone nuts? The confusion out there is startling. Smart people, educated people that have gone insane. Truth has been called error. 
error has been called truth. That which is morally virtuous has been called sinful, discriminatory, bigoted. That which is perverse and sinful has been called love. How do smart people buy into lies? Well, when God is shoved aside, all you're left with is darkness. God is light. And and at times when you you read the news, you interact with lost, spiritually lost people, you're like, how can you, like, I don't want to be mean, but how can you possibly believe that? It's so evidently wrong. Because God's gone. They pushed God aside. And in the absence of light, there is darkness. And darkness is like lack of perspective. Lack of fellowship with. This is why the world is confused. There's no fellowship with God. There's no warmth of his presence. There's no ongoing relationship. When we were kids, we'd play this game. Um, kind of like, I don't know what you'd call it, but maybe there'd be seven or eight of us in a rec room or something, and we'd put a blindfold on one kid, and then everyone would hide, and someone else would be like, you're getting colder when you're moving away. You're getting warmer. And when they started walking toward the person they're supposed to tag, it's like, warmer, 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 colder, 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 warmer, 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 warmer. It's like you're getting close. You're getting close or colder. You're getting far. Same idea when it comes to God. You get closer to God, you get warmer, you get more perspective, you get more light, you get farther away from God, you get colder, you get more confused, you get more alienated. You might even declare yourself to be God, which then things get really wacky. God is light. We need light to understand truth and to engage in fellowship. The opposite is also true. It says there's no darkness in God. You know, maybe, maybe at times in our lives, we're like, I'm kind of mad at you, God. You took that person from me. You allowed my child to die. You're permitting war, death. I cried out to you for redemption. And you didn't deliver. Why did that relationship break down? Why did that marriage have to end? And that's... Very, those are very human questions. We've all had them. But we transgress and we say, yeah, that means God has malice or God's a liar or God doesn't keep his promises or God is not true. The Bible says there is no darkness in God. And if there is pain or if there is suffering or there is trial or temptation or turmoil, the source of those things is not God. It's not God. Now we could have an extensive discussion about the whys, but for now I'll just say that God can never be blamed for crises of faith. Ultimately, we know he will redeem and restore, and sometimes I I don't understand why God doesn't work faster according to my timeline. Admittedly, I, I don't understand that but I'm cool with God being God. And so at the end of the day, I'm not going to accuse him of having darkness about him. God is light and there is no darkness in him. A third truth is if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
So again, back to this concept that our unity is in Jesus. So when do you leave a church? You leave a church when Jesus has left the church. When Jesus is not proclaimed, when Jesus is not honored, or there's a new twisted, newfangled Jesus that's being presented to you that's not the Jesus of the Bible, that's when you leave a church. Like, yeah, but, I, but it's my culture. We've always, our, my family's attended this church for generations, or all my friends are there. That's not what unifies people. What unifies the church is Jesus. There is no fellowship apart from Jesus. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesus. Most of us wouldn't be friends if it wasn't for Jesus. So while we value all the, the little extras, the, the, the fellowship, the, 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 the friendships, I should say, the, the relationships, the family connections, that's not the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is Jesus. Our fellowship, meaning our spiritual intimacy, is found in Jesus. And if there's a lack of Jesus, there's a lack of true fellowship. Fourth, Jesus' blood cleanses us from sin His blood does what our blood can't. Now, your blood can do some things. For instance, you're born with antibodies, and you continue to accumulate antibodies. So when microorganisms or diseases try to attack you, you may not even be aware of it. Your antibodies are knocking them out, wiping them out, getting rid of them, destroying them, and you're you're all the better for it. Your blood has some power to bring about healing. You cut your hand, the blood goes to work, Things take place, and you can be healed. But your blood doesn't have the capacity to heal yourself of sin. You don't have that capacity. You need a blood donor. And the one who's donated his blood for us is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we talk about the blood of Christ, not to be gory or medieval. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin because his perfect blood alone has the capacity as the God-man to be offered up on behalf of the imperfect so we can be reconciled with God. That's how it works. Only Jesus' blood atones for sin. And fifth, thank God for this, confession leads to forgiveness, not flogging, (laughs) not trying to balance the scales, the cosmic scales of good and wrong in our lives. But in confession, we agree with God that this is wrong. We repent of it. We turn and we declare to the Lord, I'm sorry. And God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. That is alien to every other religion in the world, including false forms of Christianity. That's alien. Because they proclaim you have to do something. You have to run the staircase, run the gauntlet, whatever it might be. But we have this beautiful opportunity to confess our sins to the Lord and be forgiven. Now, there's two lies we also need to look at that we need to toss aside. So five truths to hold on to, two lies to crush. Let's give them names. One, one we'll call the excuser and one we'll call the denier. So the excuser, this is the first lie. This is the person that has this mindset. Well, I I can walk in darkness, but I still have fellowship with God. So I can walk in unrepentant sin because Jesus paid for my sins back on the cross. And I, 
walked the aisle or signed the paper that said I did or gave my testimony or hopped in a baptistry tank 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I can live however I want. I've encountered people like this. It's very sad. Makes you a little upset. You know, you're talking to a brother or sister in Christ that's living in unrepentant sin. You call them out on it. Some are like, you're right. And they repent. Others are like, screw off. I'm going to keep doing it. Who do you think you are? Like, hey, are you a Christian? Oh, once saved, always saved. I can do whatever I want. That's not biblical Christianity, folks. A person that's encountered Jesus, yeah, it's a walk, right? So this is standing still. It's a walk. We're moving forward. We're not perfect yet, but we're moving toward Christ. But if I'm back here and I'm like, no, I actually like darkness. I live in sin. I'm a fornicator. I'm a liar. I'm a gossip. I'm a cheat. I lack generosity. I, I hate people. But I'm a Christian. No, you're not a Christian. No, you're not. Don't abuse the doctrines of grace. Because we've been told many times in the Bible that a truly converted life, a person that's truly been justified by Jesus, and that's not something we participate in, a person that's truly been justified by the grace of God, will inevitably and necessarily bear spiritual fruit. It's not going to happen overnight. But you're going to increasingly hate the things of darkness. They will disgust you. People come to me and say, I have a temptation. How do I overcome it? Learn to hate it. Start there. Learn to hate it. Like, see it for what it is. It's not fun. It's not pleasurable. It's not awesome. It's darkness. Run from darkness into the light. Someone said a long time ago, I don't know who it was, but I benefited from it. We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. A true convert will inevitably and necessarily become more and more and more like Jesus. And they will never, they will never say, well, I walk in darkness. I have ongoing unconfessed sin in my life. I just don't really care because Jesus has already saved me. Now, your assurance of salvation is in the toilet, if that's your idea. So this is a warning. Don't be the excuser and don't be the denier. The denier, the excuser is like, well, I have sin, but like, who cares? The denier is like, I have no sin. You can see that in verses 8 and 10. What would we call a person like that? We don't have to make up a name. The Bible gives us one. You're a liar. (laughs) You're a liar. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Don't lie to yourself. When we come to faith, we may not be positionally sinners anymore. God has made us saints. But we do continue to sin. Let's not not hide it. Let's not pretend it doesn't exist. Let's confess it and humbly go to the Lord. You know, when Adam and Eve first sinned, the first thing they did is they ran to find a fig leaf. Why? Why? To cover their vulnerability. And this is the the mental gymnastics that often take place in our lives. Even as believers, when we become aware of our sin, we just, I got to find a fig leaf. I got to hide and pretend. I can't let anybody know. I want to put on like the, you know, this holy facade. No. No, it doesn't exist. It's vulnerability. It's humility brokenness before the Lord, as well as 
a deep appreciation for his grace and his mercy and his love and the work of Jesus Christ that brings about continued healing in our lives. And it really is a beautiful thing. The first lie excuses sin. The second lie denies sin. Both are indicative of unbelief. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to take a little stock of our lives and we're going to make sure that we have truly founded our faith on Jesus. Not on people. You ever been hurt by people in the church and then you abandon your church? I'll go to another church. Well, you're going to get hurt there. I'm going to go to another church. They hurt me. I'm, just, I'm done. Don't found your faith on people. Just don't do it. Love people. Invest in people. Don't be so hyper-protective that you cut yourself off from God's people. But don't found your faith in people. Like, frankly, reduce your expectations of people. Don't found your faith on liturgical style. Found your faith on Jesus. Just take stock. Is my faith founded on Jesus? And then necessarily walk with him. And when you do, you'll be unshakable because your foundation is Jesus. You can't shake that foundation. It's earthquake resistant. It's flood resistant. And you'll be joyful. You'll have complete joy. Hey, what more could you ask for than that? Unshakable faith and complete joy. And those are available when we stake our lives upon the Lord Jesus. I have a suspicion that there's some folks here today that would declare themselves to be Christians. But maybe as they assess themselves and are open and vulnerable with themselves, they would have to admit that they haven't been founding their faith on Jesus. And it's shaken them up a lot. Perhaps today the light's gone on and you've been reminded that Jesus is the foundation of the church. We're his bride. He's the groom. He's initiated the proposal. He's signed the paperwork. We're going to be with him in all of eternity. But let's not get distracted in the meanwhile and think, well, oh, my faith's in the preacher. Or my faith's in uh, my youth group. Or my faith is in my small group. Or my faith is based upon how people treat me. That's a rocky foundation. Even like the Tower of Pisa. You may stand up for a while, but you're going to increasingly start to fall over. Let's take stock of our lives, believers, and make sure that we're founded on Jesus. And then I'm also suspicious that there may be some loved ones in the room today that haven't yet trusted in him at all. And if this is true, you can convince yourself that you're clear-minded, that you kind of got it going on, that you're living your life successfully, but there's confusion there. And there's hopelessness there. And there's lifelessness there. If you want life, you need to respond to what so many in the room have responded to, and I have found so much hope in, and that is the free gift that Jesus Christ offers to us. It's a free gift. This is what's amazing about God. God didn't have to. Because it's been like, that's the end of creation. 
They rebelled against me. God didn't have to. He wasn't obligated to, but he was compelled by his love and grace and mercy to come into this world. It's kind of, maybe a good word would be awkward and shocking to think about God doing that. God comes down and takes the form of a human being and then allows himself to be like pushed around and bullied and ultimately executed by us. He did it because he loved us. And when Jesus became God, or Jesus became, Jesus who is the eternal God became man, he then was qualified to offer his perfect life for us and as God to forgive us of our sins. So when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone, a spiritual transformation really can take place. And if you've never done that, I'd urge you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today.